Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content marketing in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and I'm thrilled that you've decided to give us a little bit of your time this week to discuss that very important issue of content marketing in government and the public sector. And as we do each week, we start with a definition so we know just exactly what it is we're talking about when we consider what content marketing is in this context. So content marketing is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So to our guest today, John Cohen is the Vice President of Survey Research at SurveyMonkey. John has a long history and experience in surveys and research. He was the Associate Survey Director of the Public Policy Institute of California Assistant Director of the Polling Unit for the News Division of the American Broadcast Corporation. He was also Director of Polling for the Washington Post, and the list goes on. Most recently, though, before he started at SurveyMonkey, John was the Vice President of Research at the Pew Research Centre, an independent research organisation that studies the media. And you might be aware of the great reports that they put together, such as the state of the news media. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. So, John, thank you very much for joining us in Transition. It's a pleasure to be here. And and I either can't hold on to a job or I'm quite old. (laughs) So um, thank you for for, for the intro, and I'm excited to be here. So, So, John, tell me, when did this fascination or interest with research begin for you? Oh, gosh, for me, I mean, it started the way that it does for for many um, young kids, which is paying attention to sports and, you know, kind of waking up every morning in the days that you know, newspapers used to be delivered to our homes and scouring the sporting pages first. And kind of that was kind of the familiarity with statistics and the importance of numbers um, just as a fan. Um, but then, you know, kind of parlaying that into into school and, you know, the, my affinity toward numbers and then ultimately statistics and the interest I had around political history and kind of providing some numeracy, you know, not only to the Civil War where I started, but, you know, kind of ongoing into current contemporary American politics where I've spent the bulk of the last dozen years um, doing research about what's going on here. And so tell me, what is changing or how is your world changing over the last few years, particularly as technology starts to enable people to be much more efficient and effective in gathering the new the, the views of the audiences that they're seeking to engage? Well, there's certainly a whole lot more data out there. I think the, the, the fundamental challenge in high quality research remains the same. And in fact, is, you know, there's a greater challenge you know, surrounding that given the, you know, just the deluge of numbers that surrounds our daily lives. But so much is, you know, remains about writing good questions, asking the right groups of people and making the proper analysis. And that's that's true today, you know, when we're inundated with numbers on the web, as it was when numbers were harder to come by um, on pen and paper and, you know, on the phone and kind of a whole range of things. But what, what your question, you know, ultimately, you know, gets at is you know, numbers have always provided 
great value in decision making. You know, and just because they're easier to come by doesn't mean that they're it's it's a kind of easier to get, make as part of the process. We need to think really hard about where numbers come from. One of the biggest challenges I faced in the newsroom at the Washington Post, where I spent about eight years, um, was you know kind of getting reporters um, in the mindset of considering the research to include in their stories from the outset. And it's a similar issue that I have dealing with marketers now. And like, don't just come to us at the end of your campaign or in the case of the Post at the end of your story and say you need certain numbers to justify conclusions that, you know, you may want to make or, you know, from a marketing perspective you think might be good. But come to research, you know, approach research, you know, kind of as a strategic investment to say, okay, here's how numbers will improve this story and I need you to go get those in advance. So they're not just, you know, frantically at the end of the day uh, Googling for a number because you're inevitably going to find one that, but you want to use a number that's right. So in terms of that, how do you convince people or get people to understand the value of using research as that, you know, strategic enabler that you're, you're suggesting there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 a long war. I think you know people. There's a lot of innumeracy out there, uh, and that goes in, in in you know not only for among consumers but also producers. And so people are attracted to the numbers that they you know think bolster you know a preconceived notion or something that they have all in mind already, or just you know strictly a CYA activity. And so, kind of, it is a it is a long campaign to kind of convince them that there's value earlier in the decision making process. So, not just you know going out in the reporting context of interviewing three people, and then your editor says, you know, what does this mean to others, and then frantically going out and seeking a number. But you know, maybe you do research first to figure out whom you should interview in the first place, as opposed to the people already in your rolodex. So it's it's a it's a hard thing. But I think my experience um, and. and you know, is a long one already, um, but it is that when people want to write about things that are true from reporting standpoints, people want to do effective marketing, and the more that you know, we as researchers can show that research is part of that process, and not just you know, kind of something that adds unnecessary time at the end of the process. Um, everyone wins, and but that's not something that we can just declare. And your researchers kind of, you know, first of all, aren't particularly good marketers on their own, <laughs> and at least not his, not traditionally. And so kind of it's something that you need to prove again and again in organization after organization. And so one of the things we do at SurveyMonkey is empower those researchers to kind of fit more seamlessly into the decision-making processes in their organizations so that they're more effective at their jobs. So they aren't a blocker or they aren't perceived as being something that you know kind of is slowing things down but is really accelerating um, good decision-making. And in terms of that, at the, trying to get it in at the, the front end of the process, because I think this is where research, and we're increasingly seeing it in our business, that the value of research up front to really, as you say, understand those audiences and to really get to the, the essence of who they are, what motivates them, and what you really want to know from them. How is, is there a rough rule of thumb as to how much time or investment you should be making at those early stages to make sure that you you do understand that audience? That, that's a fantastic question. And actually, um, you know, this, this is where kind of working with content marketers and thinking about content marketing could actually improve, you know, the job that I do, improve research. I think if we came up with a rule of thumb, that would actually help people think through the whole process. So maybe you and I can do that together. <laughs> but I think, you know, you know I, I, I think kind of, Thinking about, you know, investing 
a significant percentage of you know the effort into not only setting up the research protocol from the beginning so that you don't have to rush into it later, but also then make having some kind of ongoing um, you know calibration where you know effectively decision making is about hypothesizing you know kind of where we should be in any given circumstance and then testing those things and then stress testing our decisions as we go. So one of the missions that I personally and SurveyMonkey are I'm on are kind of breaking up that old research process where you felt like you had to have a a large amount of money and it took months to accomplish something, but to kind of test smaller things. So you test into decisions and then you have evaluate them going forward. So, you know, research isn't a one and done thing. Like, so say it's 10% at the start or whatever you and I uh, determine as a content marketing pitch for researchers, but then it's a, you know, it's a 3% investment over the lifetime of the project Mm. because, you know, we're trying to do a range of things. And this isn't again, just about CYA numbers that, you know, justify our board decisions, but they are kind of, how do we make better decisions on an ongoing basis you know, and incorporating data into that process. Yeah, and it's so fundamentally important because really with these content marketing programs, essentially you are setting up publishing programs that are hopefully generating some sort of results and really the information that you're getting back is only helping you, as you say, to test and learn to then make some adjustments to that publishing before you go again. So really research is fundamental to effective content marketing. Absolutely. And, and that's an investment that we need to make because it's, again, you know, I would, I would not recommend doing research just for research sake, right? So, you know, that may be a, there's no full, you know, pro- employment protection act for researchers. <laughs> we, we have to be valuable. Yeah. And to the extent that we're not valuable, that's a problem. And so some of that is about expressing value. Some of that is about you know, just simply getting more efficient to fit into how quickly organizations like to make or need to, I should say, make decisions. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there, there are a lot of pipeline problems in traditional research in terms of it's just too hard to get the numbers we need. And that's what we are tackling here. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, because again, you know, our, my journey, I've come to this content marketing via, well, originally marketing, but then um, via journalism. And I think it's really fascinating for me, at least, to see the value that our company is getting from the fact that we've now invested in having research people on staff and the value that they can bring to you, the insights that they can can bring. I just just can't understate just the importance of it to bring it into your process and make it core to your content marketing uh, processes. Absolutely. And the quicker they can do their work and the more efficiently they can talk to the right kinds of people, um, you know, the, the more they can demonstrate that value. They and like to talk not- market researchers, don't they? <laughs> some of us do. And, uh, you know, kind of some of us like to stare at our shoes and talk about cross tabs. <laughs> So listen, let's go to the John Cohen School of Best Practice. You, you mentioned earlier in in the in the interview this this notion of um, asking the right questions. How what's a process that people could ad- adopt that would help them to ask the right questions? 
I think you always have to start about what the questions you're trying to answer, right? There, there are there are lots of questions that exist. You, you know, we have a question bank at SurveyMonkey with all kinds of pre-approved questions in customer satisfaction, employee engagement, a range of subjects, and all of those, you know, kind of are good questions in and of themselves. Meaning that you know, there's some construct validity. There's 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 the questions make sense. Um, and we do have that in multiple languages, and the answer choices make sense as well. They're reasonably differentiated and clear. But you know, ultimately, you need to start with what are you trying to get at? What are the what are the data points that you need to make a certain decision, and then work backward from that? Because ultimately, you know, when I think about you know, is there a board presentation at the end of the day where you need to make a major strategic choice? Is it you know, kind of what ads we should air in a given market? Like, what is the decision that you're you know, kind of aiming at? What data will help you differentiate, you know, or send you down one path versus another, and and then go back into the questions that are going to help you understand those choices, and then obviously the population of interest. But I really take a you know a backward approach, working backward from what is the deliverable. So if my deliverable at the Washington Post was to kind of you know achieve a front page story, you know, parsing the Clinton Obama you know, primary contest in 2007. Okay. If that's what I want to do and explain this to my readers, what are the questions that are out there that I can refine into survey questions that are going to help us write that story? Or if it's, you know, an ad testing campaign, like how am I going to differentiate for my boss, which of these ads might be most effective? Well, it's, it's how this group of people answered these specific questions and kind of have that all, you know, think through all the entire process soup to nuts is that is that an Australian expression as well? No, no, it's not. But it, oh, okay. <laughs> increasingly, though, it's uh, as as the world becomes smaller, uh, yeah, we do do understand that. Well, what is it? What is the Australian expression from beginning to end? Yeah, well, that's that's pretty much well, you know cradle okay. to grave, <laughs> cradle to grave. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, or as my my mother's first job uh, was at a newspaper. In the uh, in, in a section that they called Hatch, Match, and Dispatch, which covered births, <laughs> yeah, marriages, birth, and, yeah, birth, and, and, and marriages. Yeah. So, 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 so I just say, you know, back to, back on point. So I apologize <laughs> for that. Um, you know, is that you just need to think about the whole thing. It's like you take any part of the research process in isolation, and you're bound to be too myopic. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But but also in the in in the in the age of abundance, in the age of scarcity of attention, do you have any advice around you know how much time you should be asking from people to to fill out your survey? Yeah. Yeah. That that's a great point. I, I mentioned kind of you know the the mission that we're on to kind of break up that one big annual or quarterly survey into kind of more component parts that are, you know, more useful to the way orgs make decisions. And I, I think the same thing true goes for you know kind of rethinking the length of a survey. So in the telephone world, you're still so happy to finally get someone to answer your phone that of course you need <laughs> to keep them on the phone for twenty to thirty minutes to to take advantage of that process. But you know even there and certainly online, you know. The, the original idea when online panels became popular about a decade ago was, well, because it was online, you could keep them longer because they could come back to a survey. And by and large, that was, you know, 
that, that has been proven to be not true yeah. over time. And you need to keep you need to be respect more respectful of people's time that, than survey research have been historically. And that could be you know whether you're doing pulse questionnaires of people you already know, so you don't have to ask them a bunch of question, identifying questions, or kind of keeping them on the phone for or sorry keeping them on, engaged online for five to seven minutes. But that that's kind of the range that we target. Right, people are you know I'm sure in your country as well as mine staring at their phones more and more, but they're not staring at them because they want to answer your survey questions for 15, 20 minutes. So, yeah, you know, again, it's, it's all the more reason to think through exactly what data you really need so that you don't have to just throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and hope you have an interesting finding at the end of the day. That's just not respectful of respondents time. And it's a burden on the analysis as opposed to, uh, you know, putting the a burden on the strategic thinking in advance. What's your views on offering incentives for people doing research surveys? Do they in any way compromise the, the data that you, you receive from those surveys? Uh, of course they do, and they and they are almost always absolutely essential. And okay. you know, I, I I you know I think that you just need to again calibrate the the decisions you need to make, the type of data you're gonna get, and recognize that regardless of the incentive, there will be a bias that's created. Increasingly for me, the research world is about um, surfacing biases that exist and then fixing them. And there is no perfect source. And, you know, there are some that approximate that more than others. And, you know, if we want to talk about the election, I can talk about the approach that we have for the U.S. election that gets us relatively unbiased, uh, you know, respondents. But even then you have to, you know, kind of unwind certain peculiarities that exist because of the way that we and anyone else surveys. And so there is just a modeling component to research that has, you know, become increasingly important given the issues that have, you know, come up with, you know, random sampling, whether that's done on the phone, in person, in the mail or online. Actually, that I would be interested to know just exactly how you are surfacing these biases and how you're dealing with those in terms of the samples that, that you're producing. Yeah, again, again, it depends on the source. So, you know, SurveyMonkey, we've built panels, uh, our own proprietary panels in the U.S., in Australia, and in the U.K., and this is on the backs of the surveys that are sent out. So about 60,000 surveys a month are created, you know, by people in Australia and sent out on our platform. And that's not by me, you know, or very few by our, you know, kind of business customers. Those are mostly people planning a barbecue or attending an event and answering a question or, you know, kind of just, you know, the, the, the great, you know, many use cases that people use the SurveyMonkey platform for. What we do is on the backs of those surveys, many of those surveys, we offer people um, the opportunity to answer additional surveys for a charitable contribution um, to a charity of their choice. And so, you know, we did that in the U.S. as well, where we have far more surveys. Globally, we have about 500,000 new surveys a month sent out of our platform. And globally, we have 3 million daily respondents. So that's a hugely, you know, huge wow. and hugely diverse pool of people given the use case of SurveyMonkey. And so then we, you know, sign up people to, um, to we impanel them to take additional surveys. And so the first question that I tackled coming over, from Pew was, does this mean that we have uh, panels of do-gooders, right? People who are incented by the charitable contribution to give us their opinion, are they then different from others? And in this particular case, they are. They, they are far more likely to volunteer 
riskier um, than government surveys would have us, you know, uh, show us, you know, in, in all of these countries than people who don't participate in these surveys. But that, that bias is identical to what it is in phone surveys. Ultimately, survey taking is a participatory act. And the people who participate in things like voting, like surveys, at least on SurveyMonkey, um, are different from people who don't. So, you know, again, that is recognizing that we have that particular issue, which in this case mimics those that we have on the, in the phone world, and then fixing that. And fixing it by including that in our statistical adjustments that we're likely to, you know, have a disproportional amount of people who participate in certain activities in these data. So when we're trying to estimate, you know, ultimately values from that or, you know, even use it in predictive models of other things, we need to kind of be cognizant of that and, and fix it to the extent we can. So that's, that's our case. There are different data. You know, there's all increasingly amounts of survey respondents globally that come via gaming networks or via different kinds of things. And understanding how those people are different, um, not only attitudinally, but demographically and behaviorally, is essential to doing high-quality work. Yeah. Now, in terms of seeking out insights from the, you know, the people, the citizens that you're seeking to engage, how important do you believe it is to discover more about that person from a psychographic, you know, as well as the demographic, to know more about the person than just the specific area of interest that you might be looking to uncover? For example, if it's a particular government program that you're looking for people to participate in, it might be, a, say, a business development or a business encouragement initiative. How important is it to, to know more about that person than just how they operate their business? That's a fantastic question, and it's it's a really existential one when it comes to approaching uh, basic, you know, kind of sociological research. Right there, there, there is a camp that is all about micro data and micro trends. That you know that we are just the accumulation of all these very small things. Like I own this bicycle and subscribe to these magazines, and you know, kind of have this, you know, this rating on some authoritarian in that some sociologist has created, you know, or whether there are kind of bigger sweepy things at hand, just, you know, like race and political party affiliation and, you know, marital status and kind of more traditional demographic things. And like when I've done political analysis over time, I've more often than not been in the camp of it's the big things that matter, not the small things. The, the, but I understand the tendency to kind of try to parse more and more um, of the detail. What I worry about on the detail side of things is that there's so many spurious correlations, right? Like the, mm. you know, the, you know, bro- eating broccoli may be correlated with support for a particular political candidate, but eating broccoli has nothing to do with support, yeah. support for that candidate. And so, you know, kind of, I, I think more often than not, um, we ended up chasing our tails in the, in the big data micro world. And it's the big sweepy things that we need to understand. Although, you know, kind of, there's no one answer. I, I, I can, I can say this is a matter of principle and it's an existential deep question. And I can, and I, I can say, as I did kind of where my inclination lies, but it is a moving target and it depends on what we're trying to predict what we're trying to analyze. And in fact, to get back to the beginning, uh, your premise is like, ultimately it's about how we communicate, mm. right? So this is a, kind of, there's research about uncovering things. And then there's the, 
you know, content marketing is fundamentally about how do I get these data out in a way that resonate with a group of people I'm trying to, you know, have an impact on mm. and get them to do something. And so I think that how you, whether you believe in the micro, the macro, how you put these back together in a storytelling way is, is essential and varies across different kinds of people. Yeah. But, and again, trying to, to make those judgments though, it's, Given that it's so accessible these days, you know, using SurveyMonkey to be able to to knock it together, send something out, there is still a role though, isn't there, for that experienced researcher to be able to try to help you to to get that quality because while it's easy to knock it up, send it out, it's a lot harder to actually find the value in the the information that you're looking at if you if you really don't know what you're doing. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think there, there's like I, I will, I will long and probably forever argue that there's great value in research and researchers, yeah. you know, a, as a corollary. I think what you know, what I, what I think SurveyMonkey empowers at root is you know people who know more having greater access to that data, and you know, kind of whether it's quicker, more data, more contextual data, et cetera. And you know, but there's still value in someone who knows something looking at it. In many cases, the, that person who knows something has been a researcher. In other cases, it's the, the business owner herself or a strategist. And so different kinds of people, but they all need to be numerate, understand where the data came from, and effectively be researchers. It's just you know, different people are, you know, are, are now capable of it because of tools like SurveyMonkey. At the same time, they need guidance. And you know, we try to provide some of that within the product, but there's, you know, I think thankfully for me, there will all be, always be a role for someone who's an expert in research, not just an expert in a different field. Yeah, no question. Um, what are the most common mistakes that you see in terms of people designing their own surveys and, and, and trying to get those yeah. insights? Where, where do the problems come uh, they, they they come from a number of um, areas. One, a couple that we've covered. One is they just they write questionnaires that are far too long, <laughs> yeah, and that are you know downright you know become abusive to a respondent, whether online or on the phone, and and I think that that that's a real problem. Not having a serious conversation either with yourself if you're doing it, or with colleagues if that's what you're doing about like questionnaire real estate is really valuable and needs to be treated as if it were yeah. you know oceanfront property in Sydney <laughs> or, you know, kind of Palo Alto, any place in Palo yeah. Alto now these days. Or, yeah. Like it just needs to be treated because the respondent experience is so central, even more central than it's ever been. You know, you need to think hard about what you're, how many questions you're asking and that you're asking real questions and not just questions that you asked 40 years ago and they made sense then. So kind of being really relevant and, you know, appropriately personal, I say appropriately personal, like not asking insensitive questions, but asking real questions of people that, you know, the conversation, surveys have always been conversations that was easily, you know, kind of understandable when it was an actual phone call that you were getting, but it's still a conversation even when you're online and people want to be engaged in that. And you have to give them a reason to finish the survey. And so kind of thinking about the number of questions you ask, I think also about thinking about respondent burden in other ways. What our research has shown is that if you start, if you start your survey with an open-ended question, you know, a question where you just have effectively a text box and say, tell us what you think about something, as opposed to a closed-ended question where you say, here's a question, here are your exact answer choices. 
just starting your survey with an open-ended question, regardless of any other decision you make in the survey, you will have a four to five percentage point decrease in the participation rate in your survey because it appears hard. Like, like it, you just presented someone something that feels like work or at a minimum a test <laughs> as opposed to like, oh, I value, you know, if you really value my feedback, don't make me work that hard. Yeah. And so, so like if you're thinking about open ends and I, I'm a strong advocate for the value of open ends, um, but a small number of them later in the questionnaire after you as a, you know, as a questionnaire designer have developed a, a little rapport with the, with your respondents. Yeah, I like so those, that. Those are those are a couple of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think there's that whole notion that surveys are conversations, and 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 as you say, thinking clearly at the start, what is it that the insight that you're looking for in order for you to inform, in this case, your particular content marketing program? It could be a you know a, a series of content that you're going to be producing, but to really you know, sit in their shoes and be empathetic so that you understand just exactly what that is. So that's fantastic insight. So thank you for that, John. Um, Perhaps just a final question then. So we've gone through the process that we've invested enough money, um, that we've engaged with the researchers, we've thought about it, we've understood that people's lives are busy, we want to have a conversation, we know what we're looking for. We've used SurveyMonkey because, and we use it here at Content Group, and I've got to say it's a fantastic tool and we, we use it regularly. So thank you very much for all you do there uh, in terms of thank you. Producing, it, uh, producing it for us and for many other hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world. But then once we've got the, the, the data, how do we present that? How, how do we go yeah. about it, tell, telling that story in such a way that it's, as you say, it's either for the presentation or it's to um, the staff? Uh, you know, we yep. recently did, did a big survey with our, our particular audience and we presented that back to the staff. What's some of the best practice in, in presenting that information? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it would be trite to say, but also true to say that infographics, you know, are yep. a, a core component of any presentation. I'm sure you know, that's an experience you have every day doing content marketing. Yeah, it's like you know, I, I've mentioned in numeracy a couple times, but like numbers tend to float past people, and if you really want to stick your landing. Um, you got it. You got to have some kind of visual component to it, and I think so. That that that's point one. Point two. I think the reason why, f- the fundamental reason I think people are interested in survey data, you know, you know, well, several, but one of them is that they offer context. Right? People want to know where they fit in. People want to know how one number compares to another. Right? So if I'm doing presidential approval polling in the United States or in Australia, you know, the number forty-two is a number, but it's meaningless without the context that you get from a trend. Is that higher or lower than it was? Is it higher or lower than it was for a previous president, you know, a prime minister in your case, yeah. you know, president, you know, in, in the U S at a similar time in his, or in his, I don't have to say his or her in his presidency, um, in the past. Um, and so kind of the, you know, there's context that you get from historical trend. There's context that you get from comparing one group to another. And those are kind of, you know, the most essential things that, you know, kind of I look at when it's kind of like, how do, how do I provide meaning from the string of numbers that I'm doing? And it's kind of both in terms of the visual presentation and actually what are the comparisons that I'm trying to draw out that help people understand something? And 
trend is an important one, but also kind of you know benchmarking across industries or across you know, groups of people. That's where that's where I turn to increasingly um, when I'm trying to drive a point home. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that point benchmarking because again, I think that's fundamental in your your content marketing as well. In that you've got to know where you're starting from. So yes, yep. you're going to make some judgments about the audience and the channels that you're going to use, the frequency of your publishing, the types of media, the topics and all those other things in your program, but you have to know where you're starting from. So that benchmarking point is fundamental, which is why market research has to come right at the beginning of a content marketing program and has to continue. Well, it really, as, you, as you've said a few times, it, it, it it's your constant companion throughout that you've got to test You've got to learn. You've got to continue to go back to your market research to understand whether or not you are moving the needle as you are hoping, as, as you've set out in your objectives of any content marketing program you might have. I think that's exactly right. And I love the concept of a companion. I will, I will try that internally. Okay. Well, listen, John, thanks very much for giving us um, some of your time today. I know the audience would really... Um, value your insights. And I think there's so much that we can take away from that today. And it really does, it, it just underpins again to me the value. And I know from our own personal experience here at, at Content Group that we we have research now as our companion. It's now part of what we're doing. And, and it's a change for us. It's a learning for us. And I think as as we continue to, to, to change and learn, this is going to be something that won't change though, I think. It's, you know, the, the, the fact that we can now do it as well as we can. We can use tools like SurveyMonkey, um, we can be respectful of our audience so that we're not bothering them all the time. But we really do need to have market research as a fundamental part of, of content marketing. So what's the best way that people could perhaps learn um, a little bit more from you and from SurveyMonkey? Where are some of the resources that they might be able to, to get a hold of? We do a we have a blog on the SurveyMonkey website that has a lot of the work that comes out of my team of survey scientists around best practices, not just on SurveyMonkey, but in survey research more broadly. So that that's you know, kind of a first place to turn. You know, we are also active on social media and Facebook and Twitter. And you and I met over Twitter, and I'm I'm there at JC Polls and available to your audience as well to have a dialogue. Fantastic. Well, John Cohen, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. And to the audience, thank you once again for, as I say, giving up a little bit of your week to discuss content marketing in government and the public sector. It is such an exciting time for us to be able to go direct, to build relationships with our citizens and to really improve the world if we can communicate more effectively and understand, as John Cohen has very lucidly explained to us today, that research is a fundamental part of that. So enjoy your week. We'll be back again at the same time next week. So see you then. Bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.